Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of the Baked and Awake podcast. I'm your host, Steve. And at the time of this recording, it is early in the morning on Monday, March 16th, 2020. Coming to you from Seattle, Washington, as always. We live in the suburbs of the Seattle area. Most of you who've been listening to the podcast for a little while are pretty well aware of that. Could make some grandiose claim about operating out of one of the COVID-19 hotspots around North America and the United States right now, but frankly, I, I don't know where you need to be listening to me from right at this moment in order to not be affected, uh, seeing some, you know, impacts in just about every continent on the planet right now from this virus. We're not going to spend this episode speculating about all the different potential conspiracies and fears that we all have about this. Um, What we are going to do instead, however, is, as we sometimes do, and as we have in the past already on the show here, sort of look to the past for some lessons, for perhaps some parallels. Today we're going to turn to literature. I was on Reddit the other day, stumbled across a thread there, entitled, We Keep Talking About the Stand, but Poe's Mask of the Red Death seems more prescient. If I'm not mistaken, The Stand by Stephen King also features a post-apocalyptic storyline in which a major plague has affected large swaths of the former thriving North American population. It's been a long time since I've read The Stand, so uh, and I may even have it in the house here. It'd be tempting to potentially go back and check that one out again. I have read it, and I do remember it being, you know, an interesting and fun King book for me back in the day. I, I you know, I don't think any of us are probably totally free of having read some Stephen King over our lives. Um, he's a great anal- analog to Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, for his time as well, because King, like Poe, probably underrated author as a, in terms of a critical literary standpoint, uh, especially in his era, in his time, uh, because he's such a popular author, just like Poe. You know, both these people write, wrote, um, very much for their livelihoods and very prolific writers, both. But um, I don't know that I ever read The Red Death. 
as a kid coming up. And I read a lot of Poe because he's pretty great. So, as always, I'm going to include the link to this story in the show notes for you. You can read a PDF version of the story that I found online um, as well, which is what we're going to use today. Uh, found it at onlineliterature.com. So, it's not a you know horribly long story, but... What I invite you to do is, as I read this for you, like I said, just sit back and think about what you've seen over the last few days. I think it's fair to say that, you know, just as scary as the effects of the virus are the effect that the news coverage and the constant chatter online by social media everybody's an expert on this everybody's got an opinion on this everybody's got advice to offer on this nobody's uh nobody's exempt from having a uh, opinion or feeling about this so we see it on twitter we see it on insta we see it probably on facebook as well well i know we're seeing it on facebook as well i'm not there but i'm hearing from my friends about their um you know some shares coming through even from facebook over to me But yeah, I think, you know, our our reactions and our behavior in this time is is those of us who aren't even sick yet, those of us who don't even have a family member who's sick yet, is every bit as scary as any potential flu-like illness itself. Poe... Just as a reminder, he lived from 1809 till 1849. Uh, So he passed away. He lived during an era that is closely watched and looked at amongst the fringe historian community, the alternative history community, the mud flood mystery investigating community. Um strikes me as a particularly um, like late stage Victorian gent in most mannerisms and aspects and very colorful character even to this day when you look into who he was and what he was all about what his life was like but let's go ahead And roll something up, pack something up, make it a good one, you're going to need it, and uh, we'll see what Poe has left for us in the way of a lesson in the form of his short story, The Mask of the Red Death. The Red Death 
had long devastated the country. No pestilence had ever been so fatal or so hideous. Blood was its avatar and its seal. The redness and the horror of blood. There were sharp pains and sudden dizziness and then profuse bleeding at the pores with dissolution. The scarlet stains upon the body and especially upon the face of the victim were the pest ban which shut him out from the aid and from the sympathy of his fellow men. And the whole seizure, progress, and termination of the disease were the incidents of half an hour. But the Prince Prospero was happy and dauntless and sagacious. When his dominions were half depopulated, he summoned to his presence a thousand hale and light-hearted friends from among the knights and dames of his court, and with these retired to the deep seclusion of one of his castellated abbeys. This was an extensive and magnificent structure, the creation of the prince's own eccentric, yet august taste. A strong and lofty wall girded it in. This wall had gates of iron. The courtiers, having entered, brought furnaces and massy hammers and welded the bolts. They resolved to leave means neither of ingress or egress to the sudden impulses of despair or of frenzy from within. The abbey was amply provisioned. With such precautions, the courtiers might bid defiance to contagion. The external world could take care of itself. In the meantime, it was folly to grieve or to think. The prince had provided all the appliances of pleasure. There were buffoons. There were improvisatori. There were ballet dancers. There were musicians. There was beauty. There was wine. All these, and security, were within. Without was the Red Death. It was towards the close of the fifth or sixth month of this seclusion, and while the pestilence raged most furiously abroad, that the Prince Prospero entertained his thousand friends at a masked ball of the most unusual significance. It was a voluptuous scene, that masquerade. But first let me tell of the rooms in which it was held. There were seven, an imperial suite. 
In many places, however, such suites form a long and straight vista, while the folding doors slide back nearly to the walls on either hand, so that the view of the whole extent is scarcely impeded. Here, the case was very different, as might have been expected from the Duke's love of the bazaar. The apartments were so irregularly disposed that the vision embraced but little more than one at a time. There was a sharp turn at every twenty or thirty yards, and at each turn a novel effect. To the right and left, in the middle of each wall, a tall and narrow Gothic window looked out upon a closed corridor which pursued the windings of the suite. These windows were of stained glass whose color varied in accordance with the prevailing hue of the decorations of the chamber into which it opened. That at the eastern extremity was hung, for example, in blue, and vividly blue were its windows. The second chamber was purple in its ornaments and tapestries, and here the panes were purple. The third was green throughout, and so were the casements. The fourth was furnished and lighted with orange. The fifth with white. The sixth with violet. The seventh apartment was closely shrouded in black velvet tapestries that hung all over the ceiling and down the walls, falling in heavy folds upon a carpet of the same material and hue. But in this chamber only, the color of the windows failed to correspond with the decorations. The panes here were scarlet, a deep blood color. Now in no one of the seven apartments was there any lamp or candelabrum. Amid the profusion of golden ornaments that lay scattered to and fro or depended from the roof, there was no light of any kind emanating from lamp or candle within the suite of chambers. But in the corridors that followed the suite, there stood, opposite to each window, a heavy tripod, bearing a brazier of fire that protected its rays through the tinted glass and so glaringly illuminated the room. And thus were produced a multitude of gaudy and fantastic appearances. But in the western or black chamber, the effect of the firelight that streamed upon the dark hangings through the blood-tinted panes was ghastly in the extreme and produced so wild a look upon the countenances of those who entered that there were few of the company bold enough to step foot within its precincts at all. It was in this apartment, also, that there stood against the western wall a gigantic clock of ebony. Its pendulum swung to and fro with a dull, 
heavy, monotonous clang. And when the minute hand made the circuit of the face, and the hour was to be stricken, there came from the brazen lungs of the clock a sound which was clear and loud and deep and exceedingly musical, but of so peculiar a note and emphasis that at each lapse of an hour the musicians of the orchestra were constrained to pause momentarily in their performance to hearken to the sound, and thus the waltzers perforce ceased their evolutions, and there was a brief disconcert of the whole gay company. And, while the chimes of the clock yet rang, it was observed that the giddiest grew pale, and the more aged and sedate passed their hands over their brows as if in confused reverie or meditation. But when the echoes had fully ceased, a light laughter at once pervaded the assembly. The musicians looked at each other and smiled, as if at their own nervousness and folly, and made whispering vows, each to the other, that the next chiming of the clock should produce in them no similar emotion. And then, after the lapse of sixty minutes, which embraced three thousand and six hundred seconds of the time that flies, there came yet another chiming of the clock, and then were the same disconcert and tremulousness and meditation as before. But. In spite of these things, it was a gay and magnificent revel. The tastes of the Duke were peculiar. He had a fine eye for colors and effects. He disregarded the decora of mere fashion. His plans were bold and fiery, and his conceptions glowed with barbaric luster. There are some who would have thought him mad. His followers felt that he was not. It was necessary to hear and see and touch him to be sure that he was not. He had directed in great part the movable embellishments of the seven chambers upon occasion of this great fete, and it was his own guiding taste which had given character to the masqueraders. But sure, they were grotesque. There were much glare and glitter and piquancy and phantasm. Much of what has been seen since in Hernani, There were arabesque figures with unsuited limbs and appointments. There were delirious fancies, such as the madman fashions. There was much of the beautiful, much of the wanton, much of the bizarre, 
something of the terrible, and not a little of that which might have excited disgust. To and fro in the seven chambers there stalked, in fact, a multitude of dreams. These, the dreams, writhed in and about, taking hue from the rooms, and causing the wild music of the orchestra to seem as the echo of their steps. And, anon, there strikes the ebony clock which stands in the hall of the velvet. And then, for a moment, all is still, and all is silent, save the voice of the clock. The dreams are stiff frozen as they stand. But the echoes of the chime die away. They have endured but an instant. And a light, half-subdued laughter floats after them as they depart. And now again the music swells, and the dreams live, and writhe to and fro more merrily than ever, taking hue from the many tinted windows through which they stream the rays from the tripods. But to the chamber which lies most westwardly of the seven, there are now none of the maskers who venture. For the night is waning away, and there flows a ruddier light through the blood-colored panes, and the blackness of the sable drapery appalls. And to him whose foot falls upon the sable carpet, there comes from the near clock of ebony a muffled peal, more solemnly emphatic than any which reaches their ears who indulge in the more remote gaieties of the other apartments. But these other apartments were densely crowded, and in them beat feverishly the heart of life. And the revel went whirlingly on, until at length there commenced the sounding of midnight upon the clock. And then the music ceased. As I have told, and the evolutions of the waltzers were quieted. And there was an uneasy cessation of all things as before. But now there were twelve strokes to be sounded by the bell of the clock, and thus it happened, perhaps, that more of thought crept, with more of time, into the meditations of the thoughtful among those who reveled. And thus, too, it happened, perhaps, that before the last echoes of the last chime had utterly sunk into silence, there were many individuals in the crowd who had found leisure to become aware of the presence of a masked figure which had arrested the attention of no single individual before. And the rumor of this new presence having spread itself whisperingly around. There arose at length from the whole company a buzz, 
or murmur, expressive of disapprobation and surprise. Then, finally, of terror, of horror, and of disgust. In an assembly of phantasms such as I have painted, it may well be supposed that no ordinary appearance could have excited such sensation. In truth, the masquerade license of the night was nearly unlimited. But the figure in question had out-Heroded Herod and gone beyond the bounds of even the prince's indefinite decorum. There are chords in the heart of the most reckless which cannot be touched without emotion. Even with the utterly lost, to whom life and death are equally jests, there are matters of which no jest can be made. The whole company, indeed, seemed now deeply to feel that in the costume and bearing of the stranger neither wit nor propriety existed. The figure was tall and gaunt, shrouded from head to foot in the habiliments of the grave. The mask which concealed the visage was made so nearly to resemble the countenance of a stiffened corpse that the closest scrutiny must have had difficulty in detecting the cheat. And yet, all this might have been endured, if not approved, by the mad revelers around. But the mummer had gone so far as to assume the type of the Red Death. His vesture was dabbled in blood, and his broad brow, with all the features of the face, was besprinkled with the scarlet horror. When the eyes of Prince Prospero fell upon this spectral image, which, with a slow and solemn movement, as if more fully to sustain its role, stalked to and fro among the waltzers, he was seen to be convulsed, in the first moment with a strong shudder, either of terror or distaste. But in the next, his brow reddened with rage. Who dares? He demanded hoarsely of the courtiers who stood near him. Who dares insult us with this blasphemous mockery? Seize him and unmask him, that we may know whom we have to hang at sunrise from the battlements. It was in the eastern, or blue chamber, in which stood the Prince Prospero as he uttered these words. They rang throughout the seven rooms loudly and clearly, for the prince was a bold and robust man, and the music had become hushed at the waving of his hand. It was in the blue room where stood the prince with a group of pale courtiers by his side. At first, as he spoke, 
There was a slight rushing movement of this group in the direction of the intruder, who at the moment was also near at hand. And now, with deliberate and stately step, made closer approach to the speaker. But, from a certain nameless awe with which the mad assumptions of the mummer had aspired the whole party, there were found none who put forth hand to seize him. So that, unimpeded, he passed within a yard of the prince's person. And while the vast assembly, as if with one impulse, shrank from the centers of the room to the walls, he made his way, uninterruptedly, but with the same solemn and measured step which had distinguished him from the first, through the blue chamber to the purple, through the purple to the green, through the green to the orange, through this again to the white, and even thence to the violet. Here a decided movement had been made to arrest him. It was then, however, that Prince Prospero, maddening with rage and the shame of his own momentary cowardice, rushed hurriedly through the six chambers, while none followed him on account of a deadly terror that had seized upon all. He bore aloft a drawn dagger and had approached, in rapid impetuosity, to within three or four feet of the retreating figure, when the latter, having attained the extremity of the velvet apartment, turned suddenly and confronted his pursuer. There was a sharp cry, and the dagger dropped, gleaming, upon the sable carpet, upon which, instantly afterwards, fell prostrate in death the Prince Prospero. Then, summoning the wild courage of despair, a throng of the revelers at once threw themselves into the black apartment, and seizing the mummer, whose tall figure stood erect and motionless within the shadow of the ebony clock, gasped in unutterable horror at finding the grave cerements and corpse-like mask which they handled with so violent a rudeness, untenanted by any tangible form. And now was acknowledged the presence of the Red Death. He had come like a thief in the night, and one by one dropped the revelers in the blood-bedewed halls of their revel, and died each in the despairing posture of his fall. And the life of the ebony clock went out with that of the last of the gay and the flames of the tripods expired. And darkness and decay and the red death held illimitable dominion over all.
Thank you to anyone who made it through that full story. Probably read it, you know, listened to it a couple of times from other different audio narrators on YouTube and have read it once silently to myself here on screen and, and now reading it for you folks. As is so often the case with material that, you know, I look at for the podcast, you end up spending a bit of time with it. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, literary analysis of this story, like there probably is of every single Poe story. So you can, you can easily go online and spend a lot of time parsing the symbolism of the different colors of the rooms, the direction of the progression of the rooms from east to west the themes that are represented by these powerful symbols. Prospero, of course, is a, you know, he's an archetype for today. We would liken him to any one percenter, right? The nobles of the past. The Red Death itself seemed to embody the uh, physical characterizations of some of uh, what you were likely to see in the era of tuberculosis, uh, consumption. Obviously, it's a little bit on steroids in this story and Poe indicates that the Red Death kills in the in the span of but an hour or a half an hour. So even in his time, you know, there was no aversion to sort of taking the cues from what he's already experienced, which was a terrible scourge in and of itself. One can easily imagine something that would come along even worse. Did Prospero die for attacking the guest? Certainly not. The guest was perhaps there with them all along during their months-long self-imposed quarantine. The guest was perhaps never to be stopped by gates and walls and shuttered windows. The guest might have been carried inside them the whole time. In any event, these special people, these beautiful people, these people of means, 
in the end suffered the same fate as those locked outside the walls, as the unwashed masses without. Their demise was not less final for having come just a little bit later than those who they seeked so fervently to escape. So as I get ready to edit this and send it out to you folks, you probably know that Washington State is already on its way to locked down, so to speak. Schools are out. We're going to be teaching our kids from home for the next five weeks at least. Restaurants and bars are about to close to public indoor seating, sit-down meals. As of later this afternoon, our governor is expected to make an announcement directing that to take place. I am, as of now, still uh, picking up a few shifts delivering for Amazon Flex. Don't know how much longer that'll continue. The... uh, I would think the online shopping is going as as gangbusters as ever, but I've pointed out to my wife that, you know, a number of industries that, you know, are fairly necessary for, like, supply chain to, to stay functioning, you know, are populated by people that could themselves get sick. I'm thinking of truckers, right? I'm thinking of longshoremen unpackaging container ships, um, unloading container ships, excuse me. Even, you know, um, downstream delivery drivers like myself, like uh, UPS, FedEx. I don't know. I mean, at some point, some of these people might themselves start falling ill as well. We might have difficulty, you know, keeping those Amazon Prime orders showing up in two days and same-day shipping working. So that should be very interesting. Even if you haven't turned on your TV or your phone's news app or sat scrolling through a Twitter feed of, of fear porn for the last few days, I know that if you are not an utter troglodyte living in a shack in the hills, you've also gotten emails from upwards of half a dozen or ten or more different companies who you do some kind of business with. Some of them are your insurers, your insurance companies. Some of them are your uh, different services that you sign up for. telling us how they're going to deal with this COVID-19 crisis. I find that interesting. I find that worrisome. But I also find myself digressing 
and I'm going to wrap it up. I have I have more material that I was going to go over here with you in this episode, but I think I think we should just meditate on the Red Death for a little bit. Uh, last week I did a YouTube live stream. If you haven't seen it, especially podcast listeners who get me here first, please go check that out. That was a great chat I had, and I raised a subject that I'm really looking forward to covering here on the podcast there on the YouTube live stream. I stumbled across a blog called The Fiery Blog, and the uh, title of the like seminal, the inaugural entry and only entry so far on this blog was uh, a theory that this author created called The Theory of General Descent. And in a nutshell, it's a notion that is not a reincarnation notion, but that, like, how can I put this? This person posits that every individual who has children will, in some form, one day see in their grandchildren's generation a one or more duplicates of themselves. Same sex, grandchildren, generation, not necessarily identical to the grandparent at all. He frames this concept in the sort of container of tribal organization through history, human cultural tribal organization through history. Uh, I'm waiting for the next blog update and chapter in this story because the writer is just laying this out for us one episode at a time, this concept. had some great feedback from people in the live chat while we were talking about general descent and, and sort of pondering over it together. Uh, what I did was basically read the blog and, and stopped and chatted with folks in the chat at the, at the time while we were going through it. Uh, I love it. I'm super just, it's just really interesting to see how he detailed sort of, um, how tribes have managed this general descent idea without labeling it, but instinctively somehow organizing in such ways that would prevent, for example, um, inappropriate marriages between these descendants of the original versions of a person. And that's like a rolling ongoing dynamic management that takes place there through a system called the Moiety system. And that's a system, excuse me, of delineating which clans under a tribal structure are or are not marriageable. Okay, and that's all I'll say about that for now. If you want to hear more about general descent, roll on over to my YouTube channel, Baked and Awake. Look for the most recent video on there where you'll see that chat during the same chat a 
one of the commenters asked me whether I had ever heard of a philosophical philosophical what I don't know uh, notion or argument that is called error theory okay you guys heard of error theory have you heard of moral skepticism uh, Michael Michael A I can't remember his last name right offhand and I'm not going to jump out of here to do it but Michael uh, jumped in the chat had uh, enjoyed my episodes about the bicameral mind uh, James Joyce um, excuse me, Jonathan Janes, excuse me, <clears throat> James Joyce. Uh, the bicameral mind was an incredible topic that I absolutely loved covering, so I was delighted that somebody would even remind me of it, uh, told me they had listened to it, told me they had enjoyed it, and uh, he actually introduced us right there to error theory um, and moral skepticism, which are on you know, one of a group of different views of the world, starting with things like moral realism. Then we have, uh, for you know, in the middle of the spectrum, something like moral relativism. I'm becoming aware of a position or viewpoint or whatever we want to call it called moral subjectivism. And on the other extreme, we have moral skepticism and embodied in the form of something called error theory, which more or less, it claims that no objective truths lie behind moral claims. Therefore, no moral claims are actually valid. My description isn't the best. Let's go to the Wikipedia briefly for it. And we'll end on this. We're going to come back to error theory and moral skepticism and like a we're going to come right back around it like a boomerang and hit it on a full episode because I think this is good stuff, interesting stuff. From Wikipedia, we have moral error theory is a position characterized by its commitment to two propositions. One, all moral claims are false. And two, we have reason to believe that all moral claims are false. The most famous moral error theorist is J.L. Mackey, who defended the meta-ethical view in Ethics, Inventing Right and Wrong, published in 1977. Mackey has been interpreted as giving two arguments for moral error theory. The first argument people attribute to Mackey, often called the argument from queerness, holds that moral claims imply motivation, internalism, in parentheses, the doctrine that it is necessary and a priori that any agent who judges that one of his available actions is morally obligatory will have some, defeasible in parentheses, motivation to perform that action. Okay, so you as the agent, you judge that one of your available actions is morally obligatory, that one of your actions, one of your options is the moral option, that you'll have an internal motivation to choose that action, that, that, that these will align inside and that you will skew that direction. 
He goes on, though, because motivation internalism is false, however, so too are all moral claims. So as you can tell, there's you know something to come to, you got to come to grips with it and grok it here. The other argument often attributed to Mackey, often called the argument from disagreement, maintains that any moral claim, example, killing babies is wrong, entails a correspondent reasons claim. One has reason not to kill babies. Put another way, if killing babies is wrong, is true, then everybody has a reason to not kill babies. This includes the psychopath who takes great pleasure from killing babies and is utterly miserable when he does not have their blood on his hands. This is like the grossest (laughs) example humanly imaginable. But surely, if we assume that he will suffer no reprisals, in parentheses, this psychopath has every reason to kill babies and no reason not to do so. All moral claims are thus false. Now, that very argument, the argument from disagreement, we'll go into in more depth in a future episode, but that is the argument that is mostly examined in order to critique error theory and refute its position. And there are plenty of critiques of error theory out there. I introduced this topic now at the end of the show to give those of you who like to do homework ahead of time an opportunity to familiarize yourself with error theory and moral skepticism, which you will find abundant material on YouTube, for example, and I'm sure the wider web if you're more of a reader than a listener and a watcher, um, to get you up to speed on this area of philosophy. Uh, Super appreciate when people bring things like that to me, however, and probably spent a good four or five hours already listening to different uh, educators, college professors and stuff talking about this on YouTube. I, I can't get enough of it. I love it. Um, you know, it leads you down all sorts of different rabbit holes. You learn about utilitarianism. You learn about contractarianism. You learn about a, a bunch of other uh, forms of organization, you know, for society that sort of seem to, like, point to the roots of how people come together and build systems of relating with one another that are sustainable and productive and keep us safe and allow us to cooperate and live. Error theory is wacky, though. Pretty spooky stuff. And, yeah, I guess I included it because in my mind, some way, somehow, it even fits a little bit with the Mask of the Red Death and everything we're watching right now go on in the world around us. Uh, We're all going to be home a lot over the next few weeks, so... I'll try to get back with you relatively soon with that episode talking about error theory, with that 
um, well, with, we don't even know what next, right? We'll watch and see together. Tell me what you thought of today's episode. Ping me on Instagram, at Baked and Awake. If you want to tell me a longer story or if you want to sync up with me in any other way, email, talk to us at bakedandawake.com. Don't worry about buying my merch. Don't worry about supporting the podcast. Take care of your people. Take care of your team. Reach out to your circle. Reach out to those who are on their own right now. Young and old. All right, if you're like me, a family man who still has a few, like, random particle bachelor buddies kicking around in your circle of friends. Those guys probably need checked in with too right now. Definitely check in on your neighbor up the block who lives by themselves and who's a little older. There's still reason to set foot out on the sidewalk right now. Be smart about it. Don't break quarantine in those real ways. Don't hug and high-five the neighbor coming down the block right now talking about solidarity and we'll take care of each other and we'll get through this together. From what we understand right now, this next couple of weeks is the two weeks that we really need to keep a tight lid on our personal quarantines. So, if you can do it with a phone call, do that first. If you've got supplies that you can share with somebody Drop them at their door. Send them a text. It's out there, bud. We got you. Share. Because we all need somebody to share with us sometimes. Preppers, I'm talking to you. And every one of you who made it this far and who still in your lives haven't started cultivating a bit of a prepper mentality this is your wake up call okay this is what's up this is what's going to start happening now because folks are not doing such a great job on their responses the only way you can Maintain a little bit of poise at a time like this, in my opinion, is by continually taking a position of readiness to the greatest extent possible. You got to channel your inner MacGyver. You got to channel your inner Grizzly Adams. You got to channel your inner Michael Landon. You got to channel your inner. Uh, Jim Bowie. <laughs> that's a bad that's a bad uh example. Okay. Jim Bowie was a First Nations Native American murdering maniac, so uh maybe not him. Alright you guys. Let me know what you thought of the Red Death. 
Let me know your thoughts on all of this. And while you're at it, I got a couple other little research topics for you. They're not going in the show notes. They're going right in your ear holes. So if you're still here right now listening, and you want to know how weird some of these conspiracy theories are and how far this stuff is going, you look up something called Event 201. Okay, that's a UN-sponsored drill that has a presentation attached to it that went down sometime in the last year or so. Look up UN Agenda 2030. It's a real thing. It's no conspiracy there. If you've never investigated or listened to anybody's podcast or YouTube videos on the Georgia Guidestones, you've heard of them, haven't you? Rings a bell, right? Go check them out. And finally, research something happening right now in the halls of legislation in Washington, D.C. called the Earn It Act. the Earn It Act. Probably the most worrisome thing of all. Remember, whatever we're most scared of at any given moment is probably covering up something else that we are being distracted from at the exact same time. I love you guys. Love each other. Grow food. This is the year for your garden to be way more than a hobby. And these five weeks that you get to be home right now, if you're in Washington State, if you're in freaking half of America right now, more than half of America, you're home, you're out of school, you're out of work. Go plant your garden now. Get some stuff in the window of your south-facing window of your house. Get some stuff growing. Stop playing around. It's not a hobby anymore. Grow food. Farm existence. Farm assistance. Grow food. We'll talk again soon. Don't stop smoking indica. Don't stop doing shit anyway. <laughs>